My grade eight math teacher had a really creative way of trying to teach us about fractions. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was sort of all the rage at the time, not as governor of California, but as a Hollywood actor. And he had us uh, pronounce numerator and denominator with an Arnold Schwarzenegger accent because he was the terminator. And so we had to talk about the numerator and the denominator. And these are lessons that I still remember from Mr. Maudsley. He was my, uh, he was our volleyball coach and he really made math. I'm not a math a student by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, he really opened my eyes to see the practical implications of math. He helped, he went through with our class, he was buying a new car, and he went through, and here's the purchase agreement, and here's the financing, and here's my different options, and so I learned there's actually a point to learning things uh, related to, to math. I remember later on in high school, I had a history teacher named Mr. Mr. Cosner, and uh, he just made history come alive. He himself was a Christian, and Jesus is notably absent, even from ancient history or Western history, and he just inserted Jesus into multiple points. He said, this is ridiculous that we don't mention this individual who had such an incredible impact on all of human history, and it was really Mr. Cosner that got me excited and fired up about history, which is what I went on and took in university. And then I remember Professor Jeffrey Smith uh, when I was uh, studying history, and it really didn't matter whether the course fit in with my what I was aiming to focus in in studies. I just wanted to take every class that Jeffrey Smith taught because the way that he taught, I was just able to learn so much. I'm sure as I'm talking about some of my favorite teachers, a few names or a few faces are coming to mind. Maybe it was someone in, in kindergarten or grade one who had a real lasting impact on you. Maybe it was a college a professor or someone that you did your apprenticeship with. All of us, hopefully, at some point in our educational development, had one or two favorite teachers. Some of you are, are taught 24-7 by your mom or your dad, your, your homeschooled, and hopefully they're your they're your only teacher. Hopefully, they're your favorite teacher as well. Well, today, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us about the greatest of all teachers. Jesus said in, in Matthew 14, 26, he says, when the Helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, he will teach you all things. The title for today's message is Taught by the Spirit. Here Paul is going to uh, let the church at Corinth know what it means for us to be taught by the greatest of all teachers. A good teacher will not just help you, help you understand content, but will open your eyes to see that content on a, on a new level, to experience it. And, and to embrace it in a whole new way. And the Holy Spirit does that when it comes to the cross. So before we jump into the passage that Holly read for us, I want you to go back uh, to, to chapter 2, verse 1. We'll get to verse 6 in a minute. But notice what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You see, Paul was concerned that the Corinthians were obsessed with worldly wisdom and worldly techniques. And it sounded as though the trajectory of Paul's argument was such that wisdom is worthless. We need nothing to do with wisdom. 
But now here in verse 6, Paul's making sure that, that we don't misunderstand what he's saying. He says in, in verse 6, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Paul says, listen, don't misunderstand me. Make sure you're picking up what I'm putting down here. I'm not saying we need to jettison wisdom as a concept in general. He says, to the mature, we do impart wisdom. But he says, although not a wisdom of this age, there's a different kind of wisdom that Paul is going after. And he says in verse 6, or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. The wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the rulers of this age is due to pass away. It has an expiration date. The milk of the wisdom of this world is going to expire. It's doomed to. But there is a wisdom that is not of this age. There is a wisdom that is not of the rulers of this age that will go on forever. Paul had already made reference to the fact that the people considered the Christian message foolish, that they rejected it as folly. But just because the world calls it foolish doesn't mean that the message of the cross isn't filled with wisdom. In fact, it's filled with true wisdom. The Christian faith is not anti-intellectual, it's not anti-science, it's not anti-philosophy. It just takes things to a deeper, more longer-lasting level. So he says it's, it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Look at verse 7. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So we have this reference to the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age. And then in verse 7, Paul says, no, God has decreed a wisdom before the ages. Something that, a wisdom that transcends all of time. And Paul is going to communicate this true wisdom that is taught to us by the Spirit. And the first thing he wants us to understand is that this wisdom originates with God. So if you're taking notes today, jot this down, that God rules with true wisdom. God rules with true wisdom. He begins uh, in, in verse 6 by saying, by saying, the rulers of this age their wisdom is passing away. Then in verse 7, right there, he says, he says, but God has decreed, which is what rulers do, he's decreed before the ages. A, a, a wisdom that's called secret and hidden. Now, the way New Testament authors use the word secret or mystery or hidden is a little bit different than the way that we would understand that word. When we think about secret, we think about something that's still kind of hush-hush, that very few people can know about. It's a secret. But when Paul is talking about this, this idea of a secret wisdom, a hidden wisdom, a mysterious wisdom, he's talking about something that is past tense. You see, we, we're sort of dealing with two major chapters in world history. You have the era before Christ. And the Old Testament and all the prophecies that are made about Jesus. And then you have the, the, the time in which Christ came and, and how that changed everything. And so when we think about the word hidden and revealed, it's sort of like this. Let me show you on the screen. So you have the Old Testament, which, is, which was filled with prophecies about the coming of Jesus. And then the New Testament is, is 
the fulfillment of those prophecies. It's in the Old Testament that that these things were hidden, that they were secret, they were a mystery, but now that history, that, that, sorry, now that secret, that hiddenness has been revealed. The Old Testament is filled with all kinds of predictions and pictures and patterns that point us to Jesus. You have the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. You have the Passover meal and the, and the exodus out of Egypt. You have the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the priests and the way that they dressed and the sacrifice that they offered. You have the promises that were made to David about his offspring. These are all pictures and patterns. And then you have flat out predictions when you get into the book of Isaiah about a son being born and then someone who's going to be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. These were all things that were that were prophesied and fulfilled in Jesus. They were hidden. They were mysterious. There was sort of a shadow of what it was like but now we've stepped into the light and what was mysterious has now been revealed. And it says here, That this kind of wisdom has been hidden. It's part of God's ultimate plan that he has decreed. Notice at the end of verse 7. Decreed before the ages. Going all the way back before time began. Before God created the heavens and the earth. Before Adam and Eve drew their first breath. There was a master plan. The wisdom of God was unfolding. And the rulers in Paul's age, the rulers in our age, they seem as though they are the ones who are wielding the power. They seem as though they are the ones who are setting the agenda. But God is the one who has decreed the plan right from the get-go, right from the very beginning. And it's for our glory Our glory, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This wisdom, this plan was put in place before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He planned it for our glory. Our our glory is, is something that we look forward to in the future. The New Testament really describes the Christian life in three categories Sometimes these categories overlap, but the the main flow of what it means to be a Christian is it starts with justification. When you first become a Christian, you're declared innocent. Your sins are forgiven. Our sin went to Christ on the cross, and Christ's righteousness came to us by faith, and we are justified. That's a a moment in time. Then we move into the, the aspect of progressive sanctification. We begin to live out the identity that was accomplished for us when we came to the cross. And so we're in the process of becoming more holy. And then when Christ returns or when we die and go to be with him, that is our glorification. That is our life completely without sin. In justification, we're free from the penalty of sin. In progressive sanctification, we're free from the power of sin over us. But in glorification, Lord, come soon, please. We will be free from the very presence of sin. And so God, before the ages, in, 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 in a time before time, decreed that in the end we would have glory, that we would experience glorification, life without Sin, that is God's ultimate plan. That was his ultimate wisdom. It's for our glory. Look at verse 8. It says, none of the rulers of this age 
coming back down to this, the present time in which Paul was writing, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Where does our glory come from in verse 7? It comes from the Lord of glory in verse 8. The Lord of glory who was crucified by the rulers of this age. And the rulers of this age were not able to comprehend or understand the wisdom that God had decreed before the ages. Because if they had, there's no way they would have crucified Jesus. That's why Jesus said in in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them for what? For they know not what they do. They didn't understand the wisdom of God. It was secret. It was hidden from them. Paul's talking about the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers. He's talking about Pilate and the Romans, the political rulers. They were the rulers of that age. They did not understand who Jesus was or why he came. But they crucified the Lord of glory. This was God's plan. This is God's wisdom. God's wisdom works on such a deeper and ultimate level that he can use the evil intentions or the utter incompetence or or just flat out pragmatism of the religious and political leaders at Jesus' time that put him on the cross. God in his infinite wisdom can use evil to that level and turn it around and bring about good. That is the wisdom of God, is that he can take something that is so bad, as we just sang about earlier, God can look at ashes and turn it into beauty. He can can look at the cross and, and know that it's going to lead to an empty tomb. This is the God that we serve. This is the kind of wisdom that he has, that he can use evil and use it for his purposes to accomplish good. This was a huge part of the way that the early church did their preaching and their praying. Let let me show you what I mean. A couple of examples from the book of Acts. Here's the first Christian sermon, first day of church ever. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter gets up and preaches, and he says this, This Jesus delivered delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, decreed before the ages. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 2. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Paul says, you're responsible, yet you didn't understand what was taking place. It was part of God's plan. This is how the early church preached. And this is how the early church prayed. In Acts chapter 4, when persecution really started to set in on the church, in the middle of their prayer, they say, Lord, there, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. These are the rulers of this age. To do, notice this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The wisdom of God The rulers of this age, they had their own form of wisdom, and yet God was working on a deeper level, on a longer timeline to accomplish a greater vision. These rulers did not understand it. Then Paul uses a passage from the Old Testament to back up what he's saying. Verse 9, it says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 
Paul here is quoting Isaiah chapter 64. This is the broader context of Isaiah chapter 64 going uh, into the chapter ahead of it. This is a, a prayer of desperation uh, from the people of God. They say, we've become like those over whom you have never ruled. The people are saying, God, we, we've wandered so far from you and we've been under your discipline. It, it's like we're not the chosen people of God anymore. We're so separated from you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. They want God to step in and to do something. They've come to the end of the rope in terms of leaning on the wisdom of the, the rulers of their age. And then they say, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So going back now to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I'm sure you've heard that verse before. I'm sure you've sung that verse before. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. I'm sure you might have used it in a Bible study or or read it on a coffee mug. And, And normally when we think about that verse, we're thinking about heaven, so often, sometimes this verse is even used in, in the context of a funeral where, where we say, you know, we're, we, we're going to miss this loved one, but you know what? No eye has seen and no ear has heard. What, what, what this person is going to experience in heaven is beyond our imagination. It's not that I disagree with the fact that, you know, heaven's going to be great and it's going to be great beyond any of our wildest expectations. But that's not what this verse is talking about, is it? He's been talking about the rulers of this age not being able to understand. The rulers of this age, their eyes didn't see that Jesus was the Lord of glory. Their their ears couldn't hear when Jesus was giving testimony about who he was. Their mind could not comprehend that this was God in the flesh that they were putting up on the cross. No eye had seen, no ear had heard. Then look look at the broader context in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us. Is that future tense? That he will reveal to us what no eye has seen or ear is No, 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 it's past. It's, it's referring to the wisdom of God in the gospel in that he came to this earth and suffered and died in our place so that we could be made right with him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined, loved ones. That's, we're talking about what we already have in the gospel. Yes, there are things about heaven that we don't know, about the new heavens and the new earth that we can look forward to. So the principle of this verse applies, but that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying, hey, Christians, do you understand that something has been revealed to you that has has been hidden for, for centuries and centuries that the rulers of this world were not able to comprehend, and yet we know it because we've been taught by the Spirit. These things God has revealed to us, keep reading in verse 10, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So we need to understand that God rules with true wisdom. The rulers of this age only have a sliver of worldly wisdom, but God reveals the wisdom that is the big picture, that is the whole story, that was 
decreed before time itself. So God rules with true wisdom. And then we're taught right here in verse 10 that the Spirit reveals true wisdom. How did we come to understand what we understand? How did we come to have our lives transformed by the message of the cross? How is it that those of us who are here today and are followers of Jesus Christ, we don't look at Jesus the way that Pilate looked at Jesus or the way that the Sanhedrin looked at Jesus? How is it? It's because of the work of the Spirit. He says in verse verse 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul says, no one knows the mind of someone except for that person's spirit. You can't truly get to know someone unless that person does an act of self-disclosure. Unless that person lets you know what's on their mind. Like when your friend asks you or your spouse asks you or your kid asks you, they see you sort of staring off into space and they're saying, hey, what are you thinking about? And, and what do we so often say? Oh, nothing. It's never Nothing. That's just us kind of putting our guard up. We're not wanting to, we're not wanting to share what's all. It could be something trivial, it could be something serious, but when we say no, it's never nothing. But we have to choose if we, if we care about that friend or we want to have an intimate relationship with our spouse or our children. We're going to have to take that, we're going to have to take that step of, of self-disclosure. We're going to have to Reveal to them what we're thinking. And Paul here is saying that the Spirit, who is God, reveals to us who God is and what His plan is and what His thoughts are. Verse 12 says, Now we have received not a spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Notice the contrast. It's not a spirit of the world, but it's a spirit from God. It's not the wisdom of this world. It's the wisdom of God. Loved ones, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of the rulers of this age is passing away. There's an expiration date. What are you basing your life on? What are you basing your self-worth, your, 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 your self-identity on? What are you basing your career on? How are you building your family? How are you thinking about things like wealth or how you spend your time or, or whatever it may be? Is it based off the wisdom of this world that is passing away? Or is it based on the wisdom that comes from God? The spirit of this world or the spirit of God? There's a contrast. We've been given the, the Spirit of God. And then notice the, notice the little word in the middle of verse 12, the word that. This reveals the purpose. Why, why have we been given the Spirit of God? This is the reason why, that we might understand the things freely given to us. This is the purpose. This is why the Spirit has been given. Jesus promised the Helper would come and He would teach us all things. That He would help us to understand. 
understand, that we would know what was freely given to us. Notice how it's been freely given. The gospel, that which no eye could see and no ear could hurt, no one could understand on their own, but the Spirit reveals these things, helps us to understand these things. It's all grace. Paul was dismantling this concept of wisdom in chapter 1 and chapter 2 by dismantling the idea that somehow we can build our way up to God. If we're only smart enough, if we only take enough time to really think about this, we'll figure out who God is in a way to please Him. Paul says, no, it doesn't go from the bottom up, it goes top down. God has freely given to us His Son and has also sent His Spirit so that we could understand, not any new information, but to understand what we've already been given. The Spirit reveals true wisdom. And verse 13 says, we impart this not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Taught by the Spirit. He's the great teacher. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And if you have an ESV Uh, You probably have a footnote there that says interpreting spiritual truths using spiritual language. If you have an NIV, it probably says something like spiritual language rather than spiritual people. It could be really translated either way. The idea is that the Spirit is speaking to our spirit, and the Spirit is speaking to us on a deeper level so that we can understand Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus? Nicodemus was one of the rulers of the age. He was one of the rulers who had that wisdom that was passing away. And Jesus just had to, had to level with him. He's talking about being born again. And, and Nicodemus is, is, is not perceiving that there's something deeper going on, that there's some sort of hidden wisdom that he's not seeing, and he's not humble enough to, to admit it at that point in time. And this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus to try to hammer the point home in John chapter 3. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, there's a distinction here. There's the wisdom of this world, there's the wisdom of the flesh, but there's a wisdom of the spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's not us earning it. It's about the Spirit breaking into our lives and helping us see Jesus for all that He is. Going back to verse 9, remember, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart can imagine. No eye has seen, but the Holy Spirit can open the eyes of our hearts. No ear has heard, but the Holy Spirit can allow us to hear the truth of what the gospel says about us as sinners and about Christ as our Savior. No heart has imagined or been able to comprehend, but the Holy Spirit can come in and radically transform a heart. You see, loved ones, here's the truth of the matter, that when we are trying to share with our neighbors or our loved ones or our friends 
We need to understand that the Spirit, like the wind, the Spirit blows where the Spirit wants, and the Spirit moves. And we need to spend less time thinking about, well, if I just post this on social media, if I just, if I just use this argument, if I, if I just explain this in this way, how about just humbly saying, God, it needs to be you. Holy Spirit, you're the, ones that, you're the one that opens blind eyes, that, that opens ears that are so stubborn and refuse to listen. You're the one who can break a hard heart. Spend time praying and depending. What Paul is doing, you're going to notice this all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he's just cutting this church down to size. He's just... He's telling them time and time again that the way of a Christian is the way of humility. Don't think that you're wise. It's it's God who's the source of true wisdom. Don't think that you can figure it out or that you can convince someone. No, it's the Spirit that does these things. God rules with true wisdom. He's decreed before the ages. The Spirit reveals true wisdom. And then it comes to our part. The Christian receives true wisdom. God rules, the Spirit reveals, and the Christian receives. Look with me at verse 14. It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The natural person thinks that there's, that the the message of the cross is folly. I mean, Paul's already said that in verse 18. It Chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Chapter 1, verse 23, it says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. The natural person thinks the cross is folly, that it's foolishness, is unable to recognize that it is truly the wisdom of God. They are not able to understand. And there's a contrast with verse 15. It says, the spiritual person judges all things. You have a natural person. You have a spiritual person. All throughout the section that we've been studying, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but Paul is laying out these contrasts. Let me me show you what I mean. He started by talking about the rulers of this age. And he contrasted those rulers with the ultimate ruler, God, who made a decree before the ages. There's temporary rulers and then the ruler who rules beyond the ages. Then the spirit, sorry about the, tempo, the typo, it says spurt, but anyway, spirit of the, a, a, a walled, where's my spelling? What's going on? The spirit of the wor- walled world and the spirit of God. It's contrast. Who are we going to follow? And then the natural person and the spiritual person. I promise you, I spell check these things, but. There's this contrast. It says, going back to verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This doesn't mean that your atheist neighbor or your Hindu neighbor 
is unable to put two and two together and make sense of the four spiritual laws or Romans road or whatever it may be. It's not that they're like beyond able to understand. Okay, I get what you're saying. Human beings are sinners. Jesus died as a, as a substitute to pay the penalty and we receive him by faith. Paul's not saying that, that people... Natural people are unable to comprehend that. It's not that complicated. But what Paul is saying is like, do you truly understand it? Jonathan Edwards uses the illustration of you can read in a book or listen to a lecture of someone going on and on about honey and that honey is sweet. And you can understand what sweetness is and how the taste buds work and what it is about honey that, that, that makes you think it's sweet. And you can, you can understand it or you can taste it. There's a difference. Someone can understand that God is the creator of all things and that human beings are sinful and that Jesus came and died on the cross and that, and that we can have a new life and the gift of eternal life if we choose to believe in him. The natural person can follow that logic and look at Christ on the cross and say, yes, I understand, but loved ones, it's a work of the Spirit. Only the spiritual person can say, yes, God is creator and, and Christ came down to this earth and then they come to the part of the cross and they stop. And they say, that should be me. The natural person can't make that connection on their own. The brokenness, the contrition, the humility of knowing what it means of Christ personally dying for my sin is not something that is man-made. It cannot come from the natural person. Our hearts are too hard. We've wandered too far. It's a supernatural work of grace by the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to be able to see that, loved ones. It's the spiritual person. That opens our eyes. That opens our ears. And, and if we don't have the Spirit, we don't have Jesus to, to have the Spirit is a, is a requirement for being a Christian. For being to, there are no unspiritual Christians. There are no Christians who are not filled with the Spirit. I mean, this will be a review for some of us, but it's important for us to know. Romans 8 verse 9 tells us, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You can't belong to Him unless the Spirit has opened your eyes and opened your ears. Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Okay, hold on. Heresy alert here for a second. 
This verse often gets twisted. Well, I'm a spiritual person. You can't judge me. You can't tell me how to live. I, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I live on a higher plane. I judge all things. I can be judged by no... That's not what this is saying. When it's saying judged by no man, it's talking about, it's talking about the, the rulers, the people of this age, the wisdom of this world. What Paul is saying is that the Christian now is able to evaluate and assess and discern things. That word judge in verse 15 is the same word as discerned at the end of verse 14. That the Christian actually has a more comprehensive view of the world and the universe and what it means to be a human being. The way the wisdom of our world today, it's no different than the wisdom of the world in Paul's day. They looked at Christians as being narrow and kind of backward and and sort of simple and anti-intellectual. And that Christians are very limited in how they understand what it means to be human and very narrow. That's actually not true. I love the way D.A. Carson puts this together. This is a bit of a long quote, forgive me, but it's very helpful. He says, the profane person cannot understand holiness, but the holy person can well understand the depths of evil. The person who's been made holy can see things in in both directions. He goes on to say, the Christian has lived in both worlds and can speak of both from experience, from observation, and from a genuine grasp of the Word of God. But the person without the Spirit cannot properly assess what goes on in the spiritual realm any more than a person who is colorblind is qualified to make nice distinctions in the dramatic hues of a sunset or a rainbow. Any more than a person born deaf is qualified to comment on the harmony of Beethoven's fifth or the voice and technique of Pavarotti. You see, the the natural person is working with their five senses, working with touch and and sight and, and hearing and so on. But the spiritual person is working on a totally different level, something that is not perceived by uh, what, what we can conduct in a closed experiment. It, it's, it's the work of the Spirit. And the spiritual person can know what it's like because we all did. At one time, we lived like a natural person. We knew what it was like to be enslaved to sin. We knew what it was like to be in darkness. And now we see the light. So the Christian, when they speak into a situation, they actually speak with a more comprehensive understanding with what it means to be a human being. They have the wisdom of God. The Christian knows what it means to be forgiven and what it, what it means to be shown grace. The wisdom of our world has no concept of that. No concept of mercy. No, no concept of redemption and forgiveness. But the, the spiritual person sees these things. So they're, they're able to judge all things. They see it all. They've seen They've seen a life of sin. They've seen a life of holiness. They can see the whole picture. And the, the natural person stands in judgment of the Christian, but the Christian is like, you just don't see the whole picture. That's what Paul is getting at when he says that they can't be judged, and they judge all things. Then verse 16, it says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? 
This is his third quotation from the book of Isaiah. You notice it's in, uh, it's in quotations there. Isaiah 40, verse 13 says, uh, who, who has measured the spirit, or the Greek translation in the Septuagint says, who has measured the mind of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Paul's quoting Isaiah for the third time. Isaiah is continually trying to open the minds of the people of God to what God can do, and trying to unfold that secret and hidden wisdom, that master plan for the people of God to, to embrace. He says, no one has been able to know the mind of God. And, th- and then he says, at the end of verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit has come to us, and if we're humble enough to receive what he wants to teach us, that we can see things on a whole different level. Not just in terms of revelation, but in terms of relationship. Remember, in our relationships, our friendships and our family, when someone asks us what's on our mind, it's on us to reveal, to share what we're thinking, what's on our mind. Paul here says, we have the mind of Christ. He's told us his plan. He's revealed to us his purpose. He wants to relate to us in an intimate relationship. The question is, are we, are we living like that? When we think about how we approach work, when we think about how we approach mundane tasks around the house, when we, when we think about our relationships with our family or with our friends, when we think about our, our sexuality, when, when we think about our wealth, are we thinking about these things according to the categories of the wisdom of this age? Or are we thinking with the mind of Christ? Are, are, we, are we receiving what the Spirit is revealing, which is that God is ruling? Let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your Spirit. We thank you that, that your Spirit helps us to understand things that in normal circumstances, apart from His supernatural work in our lives, we would not be able to understand. Lord, I, I pray that what we have heard right now would accomplish what I believe Paul's intent was, what I believe the Holy Spirit's intent was as he inspired Paul to write these things. I pray that there would be genuine humility on our part to recognize that the wisdom of this world is passing, the, the, the wisdom that we could conjure in and of ourselves and our natural person, Lord, is, is worthless, and that we would pursue the wisdom that comes from you. God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would draw near to us in this moment as we, as we think about what this means for us personally to recognize that you rule and that the Spirit reveals and that our job is to, is to receive from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.